This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Introducing First Call Triage, your ultimate remote medical staffing solution. With their office hours nurse triage line, front office services, including appointment scheduling and insurance verification, and back office services, managing medication refills and prior authorizations, First Call Triage can streamline your practice's operations. Plus, their remote patient monitoring and chronic care management ensure comprehensive patient care. So make the right call. First Call Triage is the first and only call you need for efficient, cost-effective, and high-quality medical staffing. So visit their website at firstcalltriage.com to revolutionize your practice. Again, that's firstcalltriage.com. Hi, everyone. It's Daniel Williams, Senior Editor at MGMA and host of the MGMA Podcast Network. I'm happy to announce that in January 2024, we are introducing a new MGMA offering. It's the MGMA Book Club. Our first book that we'll be reading is Insight by Tasha Yurick. We're going to have our first book club meeting January 23rd. So if you are interested, email me at dwilliams at mgma.com or you can join the book club by going to the MGMA community and searching for book club. This month, we have a special treat. We're having a conversation with the author herself, Tasha Yurick. Dr. Tasha Yurick is an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times bestselling author. Recognized as the world's leading self-awareness coach and communication expert, Tasha pairs her scientific background with more than 20 years coaching senior executives to share the surprising secrets to thrive in a changing world. She's spoken live to hundreds of thousands on every continent but Antarctica, and her most recent TEDx talk has more than 9 million views. Tasha's latest book, Insight, the one we're going to be talking about today, appears on Brene Brown's bookshelf. And famed Wharton professor Adam Grant calls it one of the three titles he recommends most often. If that's not enough in her spare time, Tasha enjoys traveling, rescuing dogs, and is a proud and unapologetic musical theater nerd. Well, Tasha, welcome to the MGMA Insights Podcast. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Yeah, as I was mentioning, we are really excited here at MGMA. We have started an MGMA book club with our MGMA members. And for our first book, we have chosen your book, as I mentioned, Insight. So let's just talk about that a little bit. If you could give us an idea, 
maybe what the origin of it was. When did you decide you wanted to spend four years or more of your life uh, researching this book inside and, and what's it about? Yeah, it's actually almost 10 now, which is hard Ooh. to believe. <laughs> but uh, basically, so so my background is I've been an organizational psychologist for uh, more than the last 20 years. And I kept seeing this pattern in the the CEOs and senior executives that I coached, which was that there was one certain type of executive who was willing to question the way they saw themselves and to do a better job of learning how other people saw them. And relative to sort of the average executive who you know didn't have the time or energy or commitment to do that, they were infinitely more successful, more respected leaders, and they were also more fulfilled personally. And right around that time, the word self-awareness had been really becoming kind of a buzzword, right? We'd read about it everywhere and everybody would talk about who wasn't self-aware. And as a scientist, you know, with a, a very quantitative background in a, in a field of psychology that, you know, really likes to do research, I wanted to know, you know, what's the truth around this, this uh, skill? Is it really as important as we think it is? And, you know, kind of what is it? Where does it come from? Why do we need it? And then if it was as important as, as we thought it was, our research team, how do you get more of it? And so that started a, uh, you know, now again, almost decade-long research program really looking at some of the, the myths and truths of what it takes to build self-awareness. And, you know, the, the really exciting thing, at least to me, is we discovered that, that we, we get so many things wrong in, in the area of common wisdom. And so what we've really tried to set out to do is to help people who are you know, interested in improving their self-awareness to go down the right path. So they actually get uh, a return on their investment for the time and really reap all those benefits that comes with being self-aware. Okay. So one of the aspects of this book, and you do address it in the book, but many of our readers and listeners may be aware of the term emotional intelligence. And mm -hmm. that's where my brain obviously was going before I started the book. And then I saw where it, it does have some differences. So if you could help explain that, uh, where the commonalities are with emotional intelligence, but then maybe where they are different as well. Thank you for that question. I think it's a really important way to just get our, you know, mental schema for all these things mm -hmm. straight. So uh, if you sort of think about a Venn diagram, the the construct of self-awareness and emotional intelligence, they have um, some overlap, but they also each have a lot of unique characteristics. So emotional intelligence really in a nutshell is being able to uh, understand and navigate your own emotions and then also being able to do that with the people around you. And self-awareness overlaps with that in that uh, sort of emotional self-awareness is a component of that overall knowing who you are and how you're seen. But self-awareness also has um, several other elements that we need to develop in order to be self-aware. And um, our research team, you know, this took us several years. It was uh, not easy, <laughs> but we finally discovered that there are seven types of self-knowledge that distinguish the self-aware from everybody else. And that includes everything from knowing our values to knowing what we're passionate about, to knowing what types of environments and people give us energy versus take it away, 
uh, all the way to things like, you know, what are our reactions? And by the way, emotions are included in that all the way to what's the impact that we're having on other people. So um, I see self-awareness as kind of a broader construct that's beyond, you know, quote unquote, just emotions. But to your point, emotions are a really important piece of the puzzle. Okay. I want to comment on another part of this, because when someone sees a book like this, they might not realize there is some humor in here. You made me laugh <laughs> out loud several times. And one in particular is your chapter on mindfulness. And you open the chapter as you and your sister are driving up to Shambhala Mountain Center. It's now Drala right. Mountain Center here in northern Colorado. The reason I laughed was because I just spent a week there in December in a silent retreat. And so you were describing the walking around in the mindful meditation uh, circle. <laughs> and I laughed out loud. I wanted to ask you just real quick, anything about that experience that you want to share with our readers or oh, sure. anything with mindfulness as well? You know, it's funny because one of the themes that readers will find in this book is that I am on this journey of self-awareness just as much, if not more than most mm -hmm. people. Um, and so I, I thought it was only fair since mindfulness was such an important part of, of building self-awareness to, you know, really kind of dive into that world because as a, you know, type A, always on the go, always impatient person. I'd always meant to get around to learning to meditate, but I always found that all these excuses for why, oh, you know, it's really not the right time. Uh, but my sister actually is uh, incredible in so many ways. But one of the ways she's incredible is she's a very devoted uh, meditator. And so, you know, you sort of think about the scene of that. It's almost mm -hmm. like a sitcom, right? It's right. me it is. kind of in this world that like, I, I don't really understand. And, you know, I found a little bit of humor in and in a respectful way. Uh, and then Abby, of course, being, you know, a, an A plus student in all of our classes. But what was really interesting about that experience actually was, you know, and I try to find humor in everything mm -hmm. I do because life is too hard to, to not it do is. that. Um, but at the end, we, we went up to, uh, there's this beautiful, beautiful stupa, you know, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar okay. with. And yeah. um, I had been struggling with meditating the whole weekends. But for some reason, in that environment, at the end of our experience, I finally got it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't say to this day that I'm a, I'm a, you know, habitual meditator, right. but I actually have found ways to incorporate that practice into my life in a really beautiful way. So, you know, as, as sort of fun and zany as that experience was at first, it was also a really powerful one. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that because that just connected with me in such a way. And it's so, uh, you know, the synchronicity of life that I just happened to have gone there and then read the book. And so it really connected that chapter in a, a special way for me. So yeah. What a coincidence. That. That's I amazing. I know. I know. Um, you are a scientist and you have, you do make this, it's a rigorous book, but it's a very fun book as well. One that someone can really live with and examine themselves and then examine themselves through the eyes of others as well. So I wanted to ask you about the research, the kind of research that you took, uh, that took place to make this book happen, but then also did any of the findings uh, surprise you? 
Oh, well, yes, is the preface to that. Maybe we'll come back to it. We as a research team, so there were about, you know, 12 of us at any wow. given point. So this was mostly, uh, you know, my my colleagues in academia um, and and several research assistants. But what we wanted to really understand were were kind of three things. And the first was what was already out there in terms of, you know, peer-reviewed empirical research on self-awareness. And we read almost 1,000 empirical journal articles, so you don't have to. You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) And, you know, we discovered a lot of really interesting things, you know, several kind of game-changing insights that just weren't in the public domain. But then also we discovered how, um, you know, sort of – I don't know, challenging or or not always practically applicable some of that research was. So the second piece of our program was really trying to to advance and extend what was already there in a little bit more of a practical way. So we surveyed, you know, across, gosh, I don't know the number off the top of my head, maybe a dozen or so separate samples and investigations where we surveyed people from all around the world on, you know, sort of their experiences with self-awareness. We spent almost four years uh, developing and validating a multi-rater self-awareness assessment. And we used that assessment for the third piece of our our research program, which was to find, uh, we ended up finding 50 people, five zero, who didn't start out as self-aware, but through, you know, some magical process that we wanted to understand, were able to become, you know, remarkably self-aware. And in order to qualify for that, they basically had to meet four criteria. So the first was they had to score, um, you know, above a certain, uh, you know, number on our our self-awareness assessment. It's, you know, almost 70 questions. It gets to each of those uh, pillars of self-insight that I I mentioned earlier. The second was they had to believe that they had increased their self-awareness. Now, if we had stopped there, what do you think would happen? We would have a ton of people who thought they were, you know, remarkably dramatically self-aware, uh, but maybe the people around them didn't agree. So the, the the third and fourth elements had to be that somebody who knew them well filled out that assessment on their behalf and the answers matched. And then the fourth was that they had to agree that that person had made a really dramatic improvement. And this group of people, uh, you know, originally some of our research assistants didn't think we would find any and I knew we would because I've been coaching, uh, you know, these these remarkable self-awareness improvements my whole career. But we were joking, you know, what should we call these people? And one of our more sarcastic research assistants said, well, I don't think we're going to find any. So I think we should call them self-awareness unicorns. Mm-hmm. And we all laughed. Uh, but the term stuck. And the reason it stuck was because it is really remarkable what this group of people did. And, you know, just like we can learn from, you know, in the private sector, we can learn from unicorn companies, we can learn from self-awareness unicorns. And, you know, to your point about, are there any surprises? That was actually where we found the most um, dramatic, uh, you know, divergence between common wisdom of what it takes to build self-awareness and then what these people who objectively had done this were actually doing. And and those things were often very different. Wow. Okay. There's so much I want to ask you about this, but I, this is, uh, as I mentioned ahead of time, um, this is a book we're reading for an MGMA book group. It's our very first 
book that we've chosen. It is a very interactive book. One of the pieces or concepts from this book that really hit me was your whole chapter on the cult of self. Mm. And that term now, I don't know how much all of this is. This is one of the things I want you to define that for us, but I also want to talk about how things are evolving because we, you, you've completed this book and it was published before the pandemic. And we have all seen a lot of things happen in our, in our culture and our behavior, our mental health, all these things skyrocket just since all of that took place. And, um, I'm just going to let you have the floor here. Tell us about the cult of self. And then I guess if you could talk about how things are evolving, where we are isolating ourselves, loneliness, all these other things that are taking place as well, where we are struggling maybe with our own identity or our own self-awareness. Let me start with a rather arresting statistic that our research uh, uncovered. About 95% of people believe that they are self-aware, but only about 10 to 15% actually fit that criteria. And so, you know, the joke I always make about this, because let's not take it too seriously, right. <laughs> is that on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times if I, you know, I, I, I'm so lucky to be able to speak all over the world on this topic. You know, I, I, I did, um, uh, an MGMA conference in 2020 and where we talked about this. But, you know, what I tell people is it's easy to say, you know, hearing this, well, it's a good thing I'm in that 10 to 15%. But just like I had, you know, this process of discovering how we can be more self-aware sometimes comes with the realization that we're not as self-aware as we think we are. But before, you know, people start to get down on that or have this be an experience in self-loathing, the, the, the thing that makes that all make sense is we have so many internal and external barriers to be self-aware that it just isn't sort of the natural default for us. So there's nothing wrong with us for not being as self-aware as we think. We just have to understand what those barriers are so we can bust through them and really see all these benefits. So the cult of self is one of those barriers. It's an external barrier. And, you know, it started actually, most people think it started with the advent of social media, but it actually started in the 1960s with the self-esteem movement. And, you know, we probably don't have the time to do too deep of a dive on this, but uh, essentially the self-esteem movement tells us to think that we're great you know, regardless of our objective characteristics, right? You're special, you're wonderful, just because you want something, you deserve it, et cetera, et cetera. And there have been uh, low level, but uh, sustained increases in our level of narcissism since about the 1960s. So then you add on top of that, you know, more recent uh, events like the advent of social media or reality TV, or just this sort of concepts that we are the center of the world, we are the protagonist of our story. And, you know, to an extent we are, but there's also the reality that there are a lot of other people in this world, you know, that uh, we have to coexist with. So the cult of self is essentially um, a, a external 
temptation that we all feel, you know, most of us, particularly in individualistic countries like the U.S., to believe that we are special and perfect and deserving of all the things just because we want them. And, you know, people listening to this, you probably have some Facebook friends who are members of the cult of self, right? They're the people who think that everyone wants to know, like, I would love to see a picture of what Bob ate for breakfast this morning, (laughs) right? Um, And so the cult of self is a really interesting phenomenon because so many of us belong to it without even knowing it. And by the way, as I was doing this research, I too discovered that I had some elements of my life that were very cult of selfie. You know, I, I, I spent time on social media thinking that this is what I was supposed to do, you know, basically being what research calls a me former, right? Let me tell you about all the things about me. But what our self-awareness unicorns do differently is they, they used social media to be an informer, to inspire, to entertain other people, to, you know, one of them was a photographer and he tried to show his beautiful photos to make people's lives better. And even even a change like that, I think, is um, can be really dramatic. But but I encourage everybody who's listening to this to take a really good hard look in the mirror. And if if you need help, the people around you are usually happy to share that feedback with you, <laughs> because the right. cult of self is one of the biggest obstacles there is to self awareness. It is, it is, and it just your case studies throughout the book are just so spot on. They're one, I'm I'm not trying to just flatter you here, but they were so well written and but they're also very compelling, um, whether you're talking about people on a very personal level or how they interact with um, their teams and their organizations. And I think you give a great uh, variety there uh, going from one that resonated with me was one of your case studies where uh the person was getting feedback from their kids and that was like whoa that that was like uh, almost a tearjerker moment yeah. <laughs> in that one to uh just different case studies where the team just literally for lack of a better phrase can't stand the the boss and they're struggling <laughs> I know that, that's a, everybody who's a boss should should read that and think really long and hard about it right right because so our... what i always tell people you know when i'm coaching ceos they say um, you know, so you're going to interview, you know, 30 or 35 people that work with me and live with me. Right. And I say, yeah. And they say, well, what happens if they tell me that, you know, I'm not the person I think I am and right. I'm not, you know, having the impact I want to have. And I say, well, uh, they already know. <laughs> <laughs> they need to know that you know, because once you know, then you have the power to do something about it. And that's, you know, I always have the the philosophy that when it comes to self-awareness, no matter what you learn, knowing is always better than not knowing. Mm-hmm. In the remaining time, I do want to ask you about that then, because that is a real, it can be a real difficult uh, experience to get that, get in, to get that feedback from people. Uh, people will have to have some thick skin there and go into that. So tell us about that feedback uh, process and how the individual can prepare themselves for perhaps what you said, people mm-hmm. already know about you, but maybe you don't know or want to admit to yourself something that's true about yourself. 
Sure. So, so the book provides, you know, a lot of really exhaustive tools. You know, there's, there's an appendix I'm thinking of that has mm -hmm. a bunch mm -hmm. of free 360 resources. So there's a lot of depth there. What I want to focus on maybe is just kind of a, a simple tool that anybody who's listening to this can do to get a little bit more feedback about how they're seen. And maybe I'll tell it through an example uh, of where I learned that I was a member of the cult of self without knowing it. So uh, the tool is called the dinner of truth. Yeah. And if that sounds ominous, it's probably because in a sense it is. <laughs> and this is a tool that was shared with me by a colleague, a communications professor named uh, Josh Meisner. And he does this with all of his undergraduate students. So literally thousands and thousands of people have done this exercise, lived to tell the tale and figured out how to live a better life because of it. And it's very simple. It can, you can do it at work, you can do it at home, you can do it in your community. You find someone in your life who, you know, your, your relationship with them is important and that you want to deepen or grow. And you, you know, you can do this virtually, you can do it in person, you can invite them, you know, for, for a meal or a cup of coffee. And your job is to ask them the following question. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. What do I do? That is most annoying to you. <laughs> Did everyone's stomach just drop out of their bodies Ouch. when they heard Ouch. that? I had the same reaction. I was like, no way, Josh Meisner. I am not doing this. <laughs> and as we talked, you know, he said, so he gave me some pointers. He said, what I recommend people do is, you know, before the conversation, really think through the worst case scenario. What, what are you going to do? How, you know, how are you going to respond? How will you remain calm? Um, but then he said, I really want you to remember that our greatest fears almost never become a reality with this exercise. And what I, what I was sort of going to when I first heard this was, I'm going to you know, ask a good friend of mine what I, how I annoy them. And they're going to say, well, actually, I'm glad you asked because I find you incredibly annoying. And I, you know, I come to think of it, I don't even really like you that much. And I don't think we should be friends anymore. <laughs> right. It's the, it's like, we're going to get voted off the Island or something. Right. Uh, but he said, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of a hundred, you hear something that isn't just actionable and helpful, but also deepens your relationship with that person. So let me give you the example. I decided if I was going to ask my readers to do anything like this, that's, you know, mm -hmm. scary, that I would do it myself first several times. And I would even pick my most crotchety friends to, to ask. <laughs> and in this case, it was my friend, Mike. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, I prepared him and I sort of asked the question and he really took it seriously. I could see him thinking for a minute and he said, well, um, here's, here's one. I love you in real life but I hate you on social media. <laughs> and I said, thank you for that feedback, Mike. Can you tell me a little bit more about what, what you mean by that? And basically what he told me was, you know, what I mentioned earlier, which was that I was using my social media profiles as a me megaphone. And he said, you know, people don't really care about the award that you won. And if you post stuff like that all the time, they're not going to like you either. And you're wonderful. And that's not who you are. And I said, you're right. So it actually, you know, one piece of feedback completely changed how I was showing up on social media. And I really took it to heart. And this is, you know, almost 10 years later. And what I noticed from that exercise was um, 
we had an increased closeness, right? Because there's a vulnerability in asking that question. There's also a vulnerability in answering it. And so, you know, I really encourage people to try this. It's such, it, it, it's such a surprisingly positive experience. The one caveat I'd give is, you know, everybody has those friends that maybe there's like some weird undercurrent of like jealousy or weirdness. Like just go with somebody, even if they're brutally honest, which is usually good, that you know is, you know, 100% on your side. I think that's that's a great place to start. And if you're anything like me, you'll learn something really transformational. That is incredible, uh, Tasha. It is, it's, it's an honor to have you on here as we're reading your book. And we meet January 23rd in about two weeks from now. And I'm so excited about just talking about this book and seeing what other people got out of it. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. And I just want to give a shout out to all my friends internally at MGMA. I've been a partner for uh, almost five years now and uh, to all the members that I've gotten a chance to talk to and maybe that have seen the keynote. And I want to just give one resource if it would be helpful. Please, if please anybody do. reads this book, um, when Insight came out in 2017, we actually took a subset of that long self-awareness assessment and we turned it into what I call the, the sort of party trick version it's a five-minute insight quiz. And what you do is you fill out 14 questions, again, a subset of our longer assessment. This you, you enter an email address of someone who knows you well. The system sends an assessment to them. They fill out 14 questions on how they see you. And you get back this you know, very high level but very practical report on kind of where you stand in terms of your self-awareness. And then based on your results, it gives you usually one or two kind of practical tools, not unlike the dinner of truth, if you if you want to start working on and developing your self-awareness. So if anybody wants to take that as part of this, you know, book club experience, you can find it at insight-quiz.com. That's incredible. Again, thank you so much for joining us, Tasha. My pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the MGMA Book Club podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Tasha Yurick about her book, Insight. And if you want to be a member of the MGMA Book Club, you can email me at dwilliams at mgma.com or go to the MGMA community and search for books and join today. Thanks again for being an MGMA podcast listener. Most physicians don't have the opportunity to learn the business of medicine. What docs don't get taught, Physician Business Training is a course developed by MGMA and administrators from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This interactive course provides in-depth physician business training that can drive personal and organizational success. Purchase now for yourself or your organization at physicianbusinesstraining.com and earn eight hours of CME credit. Again, go to physicianbusinesstraining.com to purchase and to learn more. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage when it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, 
and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com slash analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com slash analytics today.